0: This is a Charles Russell Speechlies podcast. Welcome to Property Patter. My name is Emma Humphreys and I'm delighted to welcome back Laura Bushaway of our real estate disputes team and Guy Featherston Hall KC of Falcon Chambers for this look ahead to what the property world could expect from Parliament and the courts during 2024. We're also joined this year by Daniel Black from Falcon Chambers. Welcome Daniel and indeed welcome all. Guy, I'm going to confess, I was absolutely gripped, perhaps as only a property litigator can be, by your EG article at the start of January, looking ahead to what we may see in the property law world this year. There is so much going on. Um, It's been hard to extract the highlights, actually, but I feel we need to start with the Building Safety Act, which is already having a massive impact on our day-to-day advice um, and I think is only going to continue in that vein. Um, So I thought I'd start by asking each of you, in the hope perhaps we're going to end up with a top three, to highlight the one issue which you think we need to see greater awareness of when it comes to the BSA, or perhaps the one issue you're hoping to see clarified during the year ahead. Um, Daniel, shall we start with you?
1: Yes. A a number of of, of our listeners will have interests or clients cross-border, so in England and, and in Scotland. What interests me in that regard is I'm interested to see if the Scottish government does, as it's proposed to do, establish developer remediation uh, contracts in Scotland, and whether it will, in fact, mirror the approach that's taken in England. Whether it does or whether it doesn't, it will then be, uh, to my mind, uh, very interesting to see how all of this plays out in in practice. Longer term, I I suppose I've, I've just taken two here, but longer term, if the Scottish government does establish a prohibited developers list. That's something I find that could be quite curious as to see what the English reaction to that could be.
2: Yes,
0: I think that's going to be very interesting indeed, isn't it? And Laura, what about you?
2: Well, I think there's a huge awareness of the legislation itself, but I think there needs to be a greater understanding of the breadth of the legislation concerning building and fire safety. So we've got the Building Safety Act 2022, which introduced a new building control regime for higher risk buildings above 18 metres and or seven storeys and either two or more dwellings. And some types of occupied buildings are excluded, such as hotels where there's no other residential accommodation, hospitals and care homes. But there are also protections which apply for buildings which are occupied, contain at least two dwellings and are at least 11 meters high, or at least five stories. And there's so much uh, secondary legislation as well to get to grips with. So I think it's really just that sort of understanding of the breadth of the legislation. So it catches many mixed use buildings and it's not just residential, wholly owned residential buildings that people might think. Um, And the other point I think, and again, I might be sneakily getting two in here, um, is that the the potential retrospectivity the Act. So, for example, there's been a recent upper tribunal decision of Adriatic Land 5 Limited against long leaseholders at Hippersley Point. And in that decision, the upper tribunal found that the effect of um, one of the paragraphs of the Schedule 8 protections concerning legal costs was that the relevant costs incurred before the Building Safety Act came into force on the 28th of June 2022 were no longer payable from the introduction of the Building Safety Act by the leaseholders and there's also been a recent amendment to the act itself to clarify sort of a loophole which has effectively given retrospective effect to a situation where if a lease is extended under statute it previously wasn't considered to be a qualifying lease but it is now as a result of an amendment to the legislation that's retrospective so I think those two um, aspects are just really important for people to be aware of.
0: Yeah, I totally agree, and I think um, yeah, I think we're we're likely to see, aren't we? And we've already seen, you know, people starting to make service charge challenges. And I think, that, as you say, especially when people get to grips with the retrospectivity, um, I, I think we could probably see more of that. And the mixed use point as well is a really good one because, you know, as you say, a lot of landlords of commercial units will just be happily thinking, oh, well, that doesn't doesn't apply to me. But you know, this 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 link, you know, link. With residential, um, is something that we, you know people haven't had to really be aware of, except perhaps in a section five context. Um, you know, rights of first refusal. Um, but now, what is a building? Is <laughs> a question that's back, isn't it? It's back and it's live. Um, Guy, last but not least, you can have two if you want, because everyone seems to be sneaking in two. <laughs>
3: Actually, I'll, I'll just make a general point, Emma. You know, everybody in this world now needs to pay very, very close attention to the triathlon decision. And I know it's ludicrously only first tier tribunal, but it does have the authority of the chamber president and the chamber deputy president. And my goodness me, they're, they're both very, very clever people. They sigh through a whole load of very complicated arguments about the way the BSA functions. And at the end, the judgment has a really strong moral tone. And if I can summarize it, developers really watch out because you're going to get whacked unless you can out clever them.
0: I actually read a really interesting book on the recommendation of one of our construction partners David Savage called Show Me the Bodies I don't know if you've if you've read it it's by mm-hmm. uh, a, cat, a chap called Peter Apps who's at um, I think he's inside housing he's a journalist there and they were already writing about cl- or, or looking into cladding issues when Grenfell happened anyway I could literally take up a whole podcast talking about the fascinating things I learned from this book but to be honest anybody who's advising on BSA should read this book because it it is obviously the bsa perhaps has taken a slight sledgehammer to crack a nut but if you if you read this book it is it's got to be one of the most shocking things i've read and i love a murder murder mystery and a crime drama so you know it really is one of the most shocking things i've read it's really really well written um but it also makes you understand how the safety of buildings works you know which i know sounds a slightly ridiculous things but as lawyers you know sometimes we're advising on this stuff in in a slight vacuum because we're not you know not fire safety experts, et cetera, et cetera, and relying on a lot of expertise is it's really, really fascinating. I highly, highly recommend it. Um, so, you know, the BSA is a is a hard read but um and this book is no no easier in very different ways it's you know pretty traumatic but but it is for understanding buildings and how they work um and actually the importance of what the bsa is trying to achieve i highly recommend it I'll, we'll um if, if we're allowed to we'll we'll put the link on the on the website to it for people if they want to read it um but yes lots of interesting stuff going on isn't there with the bsa are you, presumably you're finding lots of instructions in chambers asking for advice on it, same as we are. Yeah. And, yeah. and the tribunals
3: between them are pushing out a load of really interesting decisions all the time, so everybody needs to keep keep those scrutinised.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's like the code, isn't it, really? It's just constant. Yes. <laughs> okay, well, let's go back to sort of perhaps, if you like, business as usual. Um, I was pleased to see we've got some interesting rights-of-way cases on the horizon, including a proposed increase in the use of a right of way as a result of a redevelopment, which comes across my desk quite a lot. Um, and also a landlord's desire to have an electric gate operating at the entrance to a private parking area, another one that comes up in conversation. Um, now, I don't have the full details of those cases, because obviously they're they're on their way to, to trial. But um, I can imagine that as ever, these things are going to turn on the wording and the interpretation of the particular documents. But um, Daniel, do you agree with that? Do you think we might get some perhaps some more useful, wider guidance here? Uh,
1: from, from the barrister's perspective, when it comes to advising, you hope you get wider guidance. And, and when it comes to trials and fighting, uh, you you hope you don't, because then there, there's more fun to be had. Much it is going to to turn uh, on the words and, and I wouldn't want to speculate on whether wider guidance will be forthcoming. the the, the gate case you refer to though is called Maitland Court Limited and 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 it's it's in Falcon Chambers. It's done by our brilliant Emily uh, Windsor for uh, Maitland Court. So Maitland Court are a management company. They they own uh, a mansion block of around about one hundred flats close to to Hyde Park and, and to the rear is a courtyard that's used as a car park for lessees of the block. Now, beyond that, there are a few muse houses. They've actually been knocked into one. Uh, This is a separate freehold, and and it's in the ownership of the Gulshan family. The the only access to the muse is over Maitland's car park, and Maitland want to maintain an electrified gate at the entrance to it. Now, the Goshans, who also run a, a vintage luggage uh, and antiques business from the Meuse, as well as uh, residing there, they want the gate open at all times. Maitland say, let's lock it for security purposes related to crime, among other reasons. I understand uh, from uh, talking to Elamie that the Gulshans have have various ways to open the gate. Including a hardwire system and an intercom that's linked to porters. And on the way out, so when you're leaving the museum the gate is sensor operated and opens after detecting movement. Nonetheless, the Goshen say that this is not enough, that the gate is an unlawful interference with their right of way. So the question that's coming up essentially is whether Maitland can maintain a very tall locked electronic uh, gate. Cross an access way subject to an express easement in the circumstances I've just summarised. And again, I'm not going to speculate on the answer.
0: Interesting. I'll get to speculate a little bit because Laura, I'm going to set you some high work now because I can't remember the name of the case but I'm not expecting you to come up with it on this podcast, but by the time we put it on the website, we must find it because I remember there was a daily mail story some years back where two neighbors had fought over this exact issue. There was a gate that they both went through and one wanted the electric gate and the other didn't want the electric gate and the, the judge was in the daily mail because he was like the amount of money you spent on the legal cost fighting about it. In fact, it was, sorry, it wasn't an electric gate. It was one wanted a gate and one didn't want a gate. And he was like, for the amount of money that you've spent on this case, you could have had an electric gate that would have opened easily. And we, we, none of us needed to be in this courtroom. And I always <laughs> remember reading that case and thinking, you know, the pragmatic answer, but it sounds like they've offered the electric gate and that's still not good enough. So um, yeah, maybe we will get a bit of clarity on that because it's a, it's a, it's a, Fair point. I can see it coming up, particularly in a residential context, increasingly speaking of someone who had two unpleasant people on her drive trying to nick her car while I was away on holiday. Um, and, uh, and my husband and I having this very conversation about gates. Um, but I can see it coming up in the context, you know, increased concerns about crime and, and that sort of thing. I can see people wanting gates, but obviously people, you know, saying, well, you know, if we have electric gates, it won't be a problem. And other people feel quite strongly they don't want to live like that. So... This might not be the last one of those cases.
3: Emma, can I just butt in? And, and Absolutely. This, I'm sure this won't go on the final thing, just as a matter of interest. I did precisely this 20 years ago in a case about Henneker Muse, which is the private muse in South Ken, And all the muse holders wanted a, a gate. Obviously everybody wants a gate. And there was one person there who's, who just rented and um, there was a spat about whether she could park the car or not. But the main thing was whether um, that the freeholders could have a gate. And they gave her uh, one of those key things and he remotely operated, and that wasn't good enough. And it went all the way to trial. Mark Wanakoff was against me, and we had the best time over three days in front of Judge Wakefield. And I've never seen that reported, but the Daily Mail might have picked it up. So
0: Henneker Muse, that was the thing. It will make the final cut, Guy. That's a great story. <laughs> three <laughs> days over a blinking car up for an electric really? gate i mean this is the world we live in isn't it it's ridiculous yeah. yes so interesting stuff with gates let's let's move on to perhaps a, a bit more of a normal certainly commercial uh context which Guy, I saw in your article that um, we could see another ground F case under the Landlord and Tenant Act 1954, um, Sainsbury's and Medley Assets, looking at the genuineness of a landlord's redevelopment intentions, where it's proposed two different schemes. Um, Now, of course, we've chatted on previous podcasts about the ramifications of S. Francis, um, and it seems that those ramifications are continuing. Um, The government, of course, has indicated its desire to look at amending the 54 Act, um, so I suppose I want to throw out there, what do we think about that? Um, I've seen a surprising number, I say that um, because I'm not in favour, but I've seen a surprising number of comments in favour, which, um, as I say, goes against my leanings. But um, what are your views? Um, do you think there are some areas uh, we could usefully change? I'm sure there probably are. Guy, what do you think?
3: I love this topic, Emma. Funnily enough, the one thing I wouldn't change is ground F. I think that having been in it, ironically, I think the decision in Francis is correct. Uh, It makes life more difficult for landlords, but not in a way that uh, I think cannot be overcome by sensible preparation. Um, The things I would change in the 54 Act are first section 34 and the interpretation of it that leads to the ridiculous position that effectively tenants on renewal get an extra three months rent free, even though they never move out, um, secondly, I'd change the interim rent provisions, which are now a disaster following comprehensive amendment. And third, I'd make references to pack compulsory in rent-only cases. But otherwise, it was brilliantly drafted in the first place. I wouldn't change anything else.
0: I agree with you on that. I mean, I don't understand in a way why we why we still have even the vague option to go to court. If all you're doing is arguing that about the terms of the newly surely pact is the way forward i just don't get it i mean an unopposed sorry an opposed renewal i think is a different thing i think you do need the option to go to the judge and as you say hopefully well prepared with the evidence but unopposed right why are we going why are we still burdening the county courts with unopposed lease renewals the code has shown bf you know if you you go to the tribunal it could all be dealt with so much more efficiently or actually a specialist arbitrator as you say especially when you're dealing with valuation issues has got to be better hasn't it
3: completely agree
0: Yeah. Okay. So I'm being persuaded to a bit of change. Um, (laughs) Laura, give me your thoughts.
2: Well, like you, Emma, I don't actually think the Act needs changing or tinkering with, but if it was going to be looked at and it, and obviously it is going to be looked at, then one area I think that could be particularly important in the future is the ability of the parties to modernise leases, to comply with ever-increasing regulation around ESG and minimum energy efficiency standards. So the starting point under the current law is that the terms of the current tenancy are, are, are that starting point, and then the party seeking the amendment has to justify that proposed change and the change has to be fair and reasonable in all the circumstances. This can be quite difficult in the context of environmental energy related clauses because they could be seeking to impose costs on the other party. Um, And we've seen a couple of cases on this in the past couple of years. I think the most recent one um, was uh, Clipper Logistics and Scottish Equitable. And in that case, the court refused to include provisions in a new lease requested by the landlord to prohibit the tenant from carrying out any alterations, which would result in the property being designated below an EPCE rating. And so those provisions that the landlord wanted were rejected by the court except a clause requiring the tenant to return the premises to the landlord with the same EPC rating as it had at the date of the new lease. So that was the only provision that was permitted in the new lease. So I think this is one area which both landlords and tenants might want reviewed um, depending on uh, depending on what what the existing lease looks like.
0: Yeah, thanks, Laura. I think that's that's a very pertinent observation. I suspect um, you and I are just particularly scarred by how they amended the code, uh, or, or rather, the new Electronic Communications Code, and what a mess they made of that. So I think I think that's why we're nervous about adjusting the 54 Act, which, by and large, works well, uh, in my view. Uh, but let's see, let's see where the consultation ends up and the government ends up with it. Um, and who knows? Of course, we may have a change of government. Uh, Anyway, finally, our team published a short piece before Christmas uh, about our wishes for the year ahead in terms of property law. Um, I'm very sorry to say to our trainee that Central London County Court has still not changed its hold music or indeed answered the telephones any more quickly, but 2024 could well be a year of change with the possibility of a general election. So to finish up... um, what one piece of legislation or case law would you each like to see changed to improve the law uh, relating to property? Um, Guy, should we start with you on that one? Now,
3: Emma, this is going to sound quite insignificant, but when I started in chambers, our members were in and out of the High Court debating points of interpretation. Um, But under leases in development agreements that had arbitration provisions. And over the years, I've seen all those go to arbitration instead of to court. And of course, then they go into the dark zone and you never hear what happens to these fascinating points and the law doesn't develop. And my proposal would be to make domestic arbitrations at least um, open so that everybody can see awards, which have to be published. Now, you can, of course, anonymize them and you can redact commercial information, but I don't see why awards should not be published. That's the position in Scotland with a couple of tweaks, and it would be so much better, I think, if that was the default provision here. Uh, So that's what I'd like to see. Uh, That was the suggestion I made when the Law Commission was consulting on the subject and um, they ignored me. I think they ignored, well, they ignored it because they were going to, but I think um, international arbitration is very twitchy about uh, confidentiality of awards, but I can't see that any of that really applies to retribute in this country and all the rest of it. I think arbitrators would be delighted if their musings were made public. Anyway, so that's um that's my suggestion.
0: Sounds very sensible. What about you, Daniel?
1: The Finance Act 2025 and increased funding for courts and tribunals. Emma, you mentioned there might be a change of government. I am looking at you, former Director of Public Prosecutions, uh, if it seems likely you do become the Prime Minister.
0: Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think, um, as I say, I, I joke about central London and it's um, and it's hold music uh, and the amount of time our poor trainee spends listening to it. But, it, 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 you know, it's a serious issue. It's, it's causing serious issues um across the board, all types of cases, isn't it? Um, Laura, how about you? I know uh, you share my concerns on the funding side.
2: No, absolutely. I think that on the funding side, it needs to be used in the right places. Any additional funding? I think we need to see some digitalization, particularly in the county courts, because in the high courts and the upper tribunal, they've both got CE file, but the county courts don't have that. And those that work in the county courts will know that that causes a bit of a bar to dealing with uh, filing documents, etc. Um, but in the same vein as that, the thing that I would like to see is that we've started to see a, a number of problems arising because of of the land registry delays and um, there's sort of I think delays of around two years to register some titles and so that's creating a problem with the land registration gap um, so there are certain steps that the parties can take to minimise that in terms of um, putting uh, provisions into contracts um, etc but I think fundamentally those delays are making uh, deals more complex, um, They're the parties are having to spend time and cost thinking about these issues, um, and it can cause issues with having to serve notices um, after you've purchased a property. So um, I think that that's something, again, I don't know whether funding's the answer or staffing's the answer, but that, that I think is something that would be uh, good to get resolved.
0: Yes, we have had some problems on that front. Um, the registration gap does seem to be getting wider. Um, and As you say, I was really shocked to discover that the county court doesn't have the e-filing, which is very frustrating for them as well, Um, to be fair. They were begging me not to send things in by email because obviously then someone has to spend their time printing off, putting it together, etc. It actually slows down the court sending things in by email. So shout out to anybody using the county courts. Please don't send things in by email. Um, Please do send it hard copy to them and actually it will free them up. Um, anyway my thanks to you all again as ever that's been a, a fascinating overview of what we've got to look forward to in 2024 we've managed to guide to make it through a whole one of these podcasts without mentioning the c word once <laughs> pandemic it might be over um, no it's great uh, great uh, insight into what's coming thank you so much for your time um, and thank you to our listeners for joining us this is a charles russell Speechley's podcast